So, good morning again. I have the wonderful privilege of saying good morning to you twice. It's, uh, it's probably my favorite part of the job. Um, it's a uh, terrible joke. It's obviously not my favorite part of the job. My favorite part is uh, getting to share my life with you and, and encourage you and, and have you mutually strengthen my faith because I see the grace of Christ operating in your life and transforming your life. And um, we have the perspective sometimes of focusing on ourselves too much, which is what we're going to be talking about today. But it's, <clears throat> it's also a beautiful thing to be able to focus on the Lord, and yet out of the corner of our eye, we can see other people around us growing all the time and being transformed by his image. A few weeks ago, we had talked about the necessity of uh, taking satisfaction in Jesus. And what I mean by that is the position that God holds in our lives, the, the value that we place on the person of Christ, is demonstrated by what we do with our life, what we do with our time. And when we talk about Christ being excellent or precious or our treasure, that goes hand in hand with the idea of salvation. Um, your faith in Christ is given to you, this is my probably my main point today, the faith that you have in Christ Jesus is a gift given by God, and that gift is the gift to treasure Christ as supremely valuable. So that's what we're going to talk about today. We're going to talk about the supreme worth of Christ. That is, Jesus Christ is more, much more valuable than anything else in our life, both our failures, our successes. And to that end, we turn our eyes to him and away from ourselves. So with that, we're going to look <clears throat> at these five areas, these five areas of this chapter the first thing we're going to look at is Paul's remembrance that he gives to the Philippians. Uh, he begins this chapter with a, a word of remembrance, and we're going to look at how it's important to remember the gospel in our life. We're going to look at the warnings that he gives. We're going to look at how Paul mentions his suffering of loss. That is, he's undergone a, uh, a loss in his life. Some things have been removed, stripped away. We're going to look at this idea of pressing on in, in uh, striving, that is, not striving in our flesh or striving in our own power, but rather striving on in the grace that God supplies. And then finally, we're going to look at sometimes an often neglected uh, element of the Christian faith is our great hope. That is, the hope that we have for our individual lives, for, for this world, the hope that we have that Christ will come back to the earth and and that we will live with him forever. It's not just dying and going to heaven and graduating into the, the, the wafty airs above, but rather that we will really experience true life with our maker. So uh, the first thing that I wanted to highlight in this chapter, I feel it's important as, as Christians, uh, we, we walk with the Lord and we continue on the road with Jesus and we begin to forget things. But we do forget them in such a way that it's, it, we don't totally forget it. We don't deny the existence of a particular doctrine or, or something like that. We don't stumble into heresy. But what happens is it's a, it's a functional forgetting. We, we, we would uh, answer the question correctly on a test. You know, is Jesus the Son of God? Yeah, 
Check. Yes, Jesus is the Son of God. Well, another question comes along. Is he supremely valuable moreover than anything else in your life? Check. But in our moments, in our day-to-day lives, we neglect that truth, and it stops forming the way that we live our life. So it's a functional forgetting. It's not an actual forgetting. And this is what Paul is, is talking about in this uh, first verse. He says, Finally, my brothers, rejoice in the Lord, or take joy in the Lord. He says, to write the same things to you. He's talking about what he's already written, what he's writing about in this book, or in this letter. To write the same things to you is no trouble to me. It is, um, it's an extremely sad state. If you're ever in the in the job or, or role of ministering to people or, or sharing the gospel with people, it's a very sad thing if the gospel ever come, becomes boring for you. Paul says here, it's no trouble to me to remind you of the same things that I've taught you before. He goes on and says, and it is safe for you. Today we have a, a, a culture that is obsessed with freshness and newness. And what I mean by that, it, consider uh, some of, most of us who are young, we've, we've been on Instagram or Twitter or Facebook. Think about, think about how those services are set up. Now, I'm not preaching against social media. What I'm saying is, there is a, uh, there's a real difference in the way that uh, previous generations have lived. They treasured books. They treasured history. They had stories orally repeated by their grandfathers, by their fathers over time, etc. And now most of us, our eyes are constantly glued on these services where we just see a little blip and then it kind of just goes down the page. And then tomorrow it's even further down and another blip comes in. And we don't really care about things that have gone on in the past. We just, we're constantly refreshing. We're just wanting to see, have we got any new status updates? Or is there anything that's new developing in the world or with our friends or with our, with our uh, you know, heroes, so to speak? Are the fan pages getting the latest tweets and pictures of, of all the things our stars are doing? We don't really have a value as a culture for... Um, for things that are old. Um, one of the, the things that I had the wonderful pleasure of introducing my wife to um, after we got married was, I, I like this cheese that um, it's, it's more expensive than, you know, the other cheese in the supermarket. It's not like there's no, I don't go to a cheese shop or something. I don't send away for it. But this cheese is a few dollars. It's probably twice as expensive as uh, the same amount of cheese in a, in a cheaper flavor. But this cheese is is better as it ages. And um, what I what I value in that cheese, the, the flavor, the taste, the particular odor, uh, the subtleties of its flavor, do not, you can't achieve that with a brand new uh, cheese that's pulled out of milk. It just doesn't happen. It takes time. And, we, you know, we just, we don't really have a lot of value for time in, in our day. And so, because this is a, a cultural element, we can be infected by this idea. We just want to hear new and fresh things. We've already heard that Jesus has died on the cross. We've already heard that uh, God has saved us from our sins. And we lose, we lose the ability to treasure and remember those things that are important to us. But Paul says that through rehearing the gospel, 
it's safe for us. Somehow, through rehearing the gospel, refocusing on the supremacy of Christ, the, the excellencies of Christ, that is safe for us. It shores up our foundation. It solidifies the walls. It's kind of like, you know, putting duct tape around your you know, entire thing that you're making. I mean, that's just, we know as, as Midwesterners, that's going to make it really strong. It's, you're, you're, you're patching up the, the chinks in the armor. We are emboldened and quickened once again by the timeless truths that we see in scriptures. And over and over again, the Holy Spirit brings to life passages that we've maybe read a hundred times, and yet we've never seen that one little element of God's story. And, and the, the value that we have on revisiting the gospel, that value will be created in your heart by the Holy Spirit over your walk with Christ as he does that time and again, as he shows you, oh, when, you know, when John the Baptist was referring to Jesus clearing his threshing floor, that had a deep meaning in six places in the Old Testament. And, and that, you know, it, it shows the glory of God and, and, and things like that. It, you, it will come to pass for you, even if you maybe think, you know, I, I don't really treasure things that are old. Uh, it'll happen. It'll grow. So we may be prone to uh, thinking in this way, but we ought not to disdain hearing things over and over again. And specifically with that, the prophets say, today if you hear the Lord's voice, do not harden your heart. It's, it can be the case that your ears become dull of hearing and you do not appreciate the word of God as it's spoken to you, as, as you encounter the word of the Lord, either through a brother or through the word. And why does the prophet say, if you hear the voice of the Lord, do not harden your heart? Because it's possible to. And I think that we would do well as, as believers to keep our ears cleaned out, so to speak. So, with that, Paul then continues to give a warning. He says, um, <clears throat> look out for those who are evil. And if you notice in the verses, he contrasts, he makes a contrast between the evil and those who are righteous in these first, uh, in these first few verses. He says in Philippians 3.2, he says, look out for the dogs. So there's, we got dogs here. Um, look out for evildoers and look out for those who mutilate the flesh. So there's three things. And then in the next verse, you see a threefold contrast. For one, we are the circumcision. Two, who worship by the Spirit of God and glory in Christ Jesus. And then three, put no confidence in the flesh. He's contrasting. It's like, here is the you know terrible devil on your shoulder, and here's the wonderful angel on your shoulder. There's a difference between those who do evil and those who are righteous. And by setting up this contrast, he helps us understand what he means by dogs. Now, surely he doesn't mean, you know, little puppies. Uh, if you make it to the football celebration after church, you'll probably get to meet Milo, who's a little tiny dog that Carla and Jason has. He's cute as can be. Um, I personally want to, you know, one day I want a really big dog that can go hunting with me or something. But but Paul is not saying look out for dogs. He's calling people, some people, dogs. Now that's not really cool in our PC world. That would uh, you'd probably get you know a lot of pushback from the culture. But Paul says to the church, look out for dogs. Who are the dogs? Well, uh, the dogs are those by this contrast who claim to know God but inwardly are dead. 
And these people, they go around, maybe they go to church, maybe they call themselves a Christian, maybe they even have some marks of maturity, or they're just generally, um, you know, they just try to put on a, a face of morality. But Paul calls them dogs for this reason. They return over and over again to their self-righteousness. There's a proverb that talks about the, the person who uh, repeats his folly is like a dog who returns to its vomit. Now, that's a pretty gross image, but that's what Paul's talking about here. He's saying those people who continually re- revisit their own attempts at being righteous before God are like the dogs that Proverbs speaks about. They're returning to vomit. It's disgusting. It's intentionally disgusting. And they return to their self-righteous attempts. Maybe they, they take a glance at the cross of Christ, yet they afterwards soon focus again on their own performance. And this is, this is the case that Paul contrasts between the dogs and the circumcision. Now, if you were here last week, we talked about circumcision as it related in the Old Testament to its mirror in the New Testament being water baptism. And we talked about how water baptism, as circumcision in the past, uh, in, the old, in the old covenant system, it was the sign, it was the ceremony through which people entered into the people of God. If there was an alien, uh, not, not Area 51 alien, if there was a stranger or someone in, uh, around Israel and they recognized Yahweh's blessing on the Israelites, if they wanted to become a member of the nation, they had to go through circumcision. It was an entrance into the cultural uh, unit of the people of God known as the Israelites. In the New Covenant, circumcision has been done away with, and it's been replaced by the symbol of baptism. Um, and so we talked about how the, the waters of baptism form a cutting. They cut our hearts in such a way that this is what God does through baptism. Our hearts are cut and the dead flesh is removed and he gives, in, gives to us as a promise of new life, a heart of flesh. And that heart of flesh has its law, it has God's law written upon it by the finger of God. And so we are not dogs, but no, Paul says we are of the circumcision. And he means we're the, we're the church, we're, we're those who have entered into and are laying hold of Christ, and we have hearts of flesh. He goes on to talk about evildoers. Who are the evildoers? It's another way of saying dogs. He says the, the evildoers are those who attempt to worship God through their own effort. So one of them is the dogs are those who uh, attempt to become righteous by God. Uh, righteous before God through their own effort. And then evildoers are those who, once uh, thinking they are righteous, then begin to think that they can worship and serve God. They reject a God of relationships, that is, the Father, and they replace that God with a God in their own image, a God of callous legalism and rules. And they approach God in the way that they think and behave before him, the way they live before him, as a God who must be appeased rather than a God who is now loving towards us. And then finally, um, who are those who mutilate the flesh? Well, those who mutilate the flesh are those who are attempting in their own self-effort to kill their uh, sin, if you will, to kill their, their, uh, the things in their life that they believe are displeasing to God. But they do it in such a way that they're using their own power to attempt to put those things to death. And what they've done is really they've abandoned one idol 
and they've traded that idol for another idol, the idol of self. And Paul says that this is extremely displeasing to God. The desire to kill the sin that remains of your own power, not through the grace that God supplies, is actually itself a further sin, and it's displeasing to the Lord. And so this this chapter begins kind of setting up two ways of thinking. You know, it's kind of like in the book of Galatians. He says there are two women, and they're they're symbolic of, of the world and the church. And you can live by the, the woman who's a bondservant or a slave, or you can be a child of the free woman. That's what Paul's saying here is there's two ways of living your, your walk before Christ. But we've been taught to put no confidence in our works, but trust wholly upon Christ's work. And through God doing this for us on the behalf of uh, on our behalf, through Christ's pure flesh, that is his body, God has reconciled to himself dead flesh, that is sinners, and made them alive. And so we don't, and you know, I'm, I'm intentionally, you know, playing on words here. We don't attempt to kill our own sinfulness, uh, the, the things that we know are displeasing to the Lord after receiving the gospel. We do not attempt to kill that stuff in our own power. We, we seek the grace of God and he, he supplies it. So Paul's kind of laying out, this is like a beginning uh, preface to the rest of the chapter. After he goes through a time period of saying, you know, if you thought you could boast in yourself, I could boast in myself, and your religious pedigree looks nothing like mine. Again, going back to that dog thing, uh, Carla and Jason's dog is is a mix between a chihuahua and a dachshund, and um, you got Mexico and Germany there. And... Uh, I love the German part of it. You know, we're Weisses. That's that's where we came from a while ago. But a dog is mostly valuable, at least if you're looking for a nice dog, a really nice dog, based on his chain of pedigree, that is, the papers that his parents had and the parents before that. Is this really a true dachshund, you might say, uh, as you are about to sell, shell out $600? That value is based on the pedigree. Paul just went through a time period in this chapter of saying, I used to be a Pharisee, I was in the coolest you know, theological club, and I had the best teacher, and I didn't, you know, at one point he says, as according to the law, I was blameless. And that's the word of God. He doesn't even, you know, say I was kind of okay. Uh, and Paul's, Paul's basically doing that to say, if you're trusting in your own righteousness, uh, you shouldn't, because your righteousness probably didn't look anything like mine. Nevertheless, I have run from my own righteousness and am seeking to be hid in Christ. And so Paul goes on and says he's lost all of these credentials. He's gotten rid of them. He's thrown them in the trash. He's burnt the paper. He says, but whatever gain I did have, I counted it. I, I esteemed it. I, I valued it as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing, surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. For his sake, I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish. Now, that word rubbish in the original language actually means crap, okay? And and what Paul is doing, both by the verse where he talked about dogs who repeat their folly, and, and this word, is he's trying to explain, get it really clear in your mind, that your self-righteousness is disgusting. Your attempts to come before God are completely junk. They're trash. They're worthless. 
they're they're like that kind of trash where when it's in your trash can, you like get an extra bag so it doesn't drip on the way out the door, and then you wash the trash can, and then you wash the floor. That's how bad this self righteousness is. I mean, it's it's like the kind of like a dead rotting squirrel in your trash can for days. That's what Paul's doing. He's trying to shock you uh, to get to to cut through that religious layer of self attempt and explain to you Christ alone is sufficient for your righteousness before God. That's what Paul's doing. It's a shock tactic and it works. He says, I've considered the loss of all things in order that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from doing the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith. So not only did Paul despise his former life, former life, but he this has become his perspective in everything. Now, as we talk about this, um, the economics of this passage are staggering. What do I mean by economics? What I mean by economics is Paul is saying, "I treasure Christ." Okay, how do how do uh, how does economics work? There there are things out in the market which are worth stuff worth money, or they're worth nothing. And those things are cheaper. A McDonald's hamburger is a dollar, which is probably the smallest unit of currency that you and I like to deal with. You know, so, you know change, it's just kind of a burdensome thing. We're so wealthy in this country that uh, we can't even be bothered to pick up pennies anymore. If you walk around, I mean, I the other day I saw a quarter. And I was like, nobody's seen this quarter? I was just shocked. Uh, we, we don't really want to value uh, anything that's cheap. That's why it's cheap, okay? That's why I say that the economics of Paul's perspective are staggering. Why is it staggering? Because you and I know, if we searched our hearts, that we have placed extreme valuations on things that are passing away. They're worthless, as Paul says. He says, I consider everything. To, like, in Paul's mind, if he were to go into the supermarket and you could either have time with Jesus Christ or anywhere else, everything in the supermarket would be worth zero dollars and, and absolutely not worthy of being purchased. And being with Christ would be like a million bucks. That's what Paul's saying. Everything in my life, I've considered it as to be lost. Or somehow it's like a debt. It's, it's, it's actively taking away valuation from my life. It's not worth me buying. Um, I think Paul and Tyler Durden from Fight Club would get together really well on this. Have you ever seen the movie Fight Club? It's an amazing movie. Uh, it's kind of gross. It's got a lot of violence and sex, but it's an amazing movie for one thing. It shines a light on the extreme moral decay of materialism and consumerism of modern America. It basically contrasts. Everyone thought the 90s and the 2000s were kind of a golden age of, of democracy and liberal pos- prosperity in the United States in, in, in terms of economic power, ability for people to purchase things. And the, the entire reason the book was written, the author basically stated, I wanted to show people that all the junk they have is worthless. At one point, Tyler Durden says, the things that you own end up owning you. And it's extremely, uh, that's a, you know, a gracious gift of God to that author to give him that kind of wisdom, because that wisdom doesn't come from the, the evil one. 
But the rest of the message of the movie isn't uh, redeeming. But that part is. I think Paul would get along with that part of the movie. Now, the question becomes then, Paul has this extreme um, valuation on Christ. Well, how did he obtain this, we might ask? Is this just Paul's religious devotion being played out? Is he just kind of, you know, laying down a trump card and saying, I'm the apostle, I love Jesus, everybody else, you know, you got these issues? Absolutely not. What has taken place, the reason that Paul values Christ is because God gave it to him as a gift. Paul considers Christ to be better, more valuable than anything else in his life, and here's how. His eyes have been opened, and he has received faith from God to see Christ as supremely valuable. It's not his own self-effort. It's not him trying to, like, you know, fast more and give away his possessions more. And, you know, Paul's not saying you need to burn everything. He's saying that everything else in his life is considered as not valuable in the light of Jesus. So the righteousness that comes through faith in Christ is completely free. It's a gift, and everything else is like trash in the way. Um, making another analogy to social media, I kind of like Instagram. I think it's nice. I think photos are, are nice. Um, the other Yesterday, I was actually wanting to take a picture of something that we were uh, we went to this uh, butterfly place uh, where butterflies were flying around in nature. And there was this wonderful sculpture by a guy by the name of David Chihuly. Um, he's a glassblower. He's, he, I think he's uh, passed away by, by now. But there was this wonder, I mean, it's, this is like, there's like five of these in the world. One's in Chicago. I saw that one. One's uh, over in Columbus. I got to see that one yesterday. And I'm taking a picture, and all of a sudden I notice somebody who's like not with our group who's kind of standing in my picture. And I'm like, just get out of here. Get out of the way of this beautiful sculpture. I'm trying to take this picture here. I want to, you know, be popular with all my Instagram followers. <laughs> and this is what Paul's saying. He's like, I see this wonderful person, Jesus Christ, and I'm trying to capture him and put him on display for everybody, and everything else is just like crap in the way. I just need to get it out of my perspective so I can see Christ and consider him more valuable than anything else. And that's what he's doing in this chapter. So Paul has just laid out this extremely lofty vision for, for how we should live our life, and he knows that his hearers may be kind of, you know, daunted by this reality. Really, Paul, everything? What about my family? What about, you know, my responsibilities? What about my job? Paul's not saying to neglect your family, to neglect your responsibilities. He's saying everything that you would take glory in as a natural-minded person, everything that you would kind of bank on is absolutely worthless compared to Jesus. And so uh, to get there, you know, we might think, man, this is going to take years. I might never get to this perspective in life. And Paul says that's okay. He's not perfect, and he doesn't have his eyes on himself, but he's not giving up. Some of us struggle probably the most in our, in our walk with the Lord in this area. It's kind of like a child. When, when you have a child, I don't have one yet, but I'm looking forward to possibly having a child someday. When you've got a kid and they're young, they're just growing. They don't know they're growing. They don't even think about the fact that they're growing. And um, you might lead them over to a wall or a banister or whatever and kind of put a little notch of where their head's at and then a date. 
and then three or four months later you do it again a year goes by you do it again over and over again this creates this wonderful little time ruler of of that person's life and how they've been growing but a child doesn't care that he or she is growing they don't think about them growing the problem becomes for us as believers when we start to acknowledge uh, the fact that we grow so Paul Paul knows this and he gives a warning he says uh, not that I have already obtained this or I'm already perfect but I press on to make it my own now that's humility because uh, as spiritual leaders in the body of Christ the temptation is for those who are around us we need them to listen to us and so we fear putting on any image other than just perfection my life's great I got everything you know you meet us at church and we say oh everything's going well brother Lord's really blessing me no Paul says I'm not perfect but he does have authority to speak to them he says I'm not perfect but I press on to make it my own because Jesus has made me his own there's a song that I used to sing it was very popular as a worship song um it said one of the lines it was it was probably one of the most popular worship songs in the 90s though my world may fall I will never let you go and that's just kind of a little bit backwards though our world is falling all the time Christ will not let go of us Jesus in in the gospel said um, that no one can come to the Father unless the Father draws him and everyone whom the Father has given me I will lose none of them they're in his hand and Satan can't snatch them out of his hand his grip is stronger than yours and so Paul says the reason why I'm striving after Christ is because I know that Christ has taken hold of my life and because of that I know that he won't let me go so I have confidence to walk in faith and in grace not striving not turning to my own effort but rather trusting in Christ alone he goes on and he says brothers I do not consider that I have made it my own but one thing I do forgetting what lies behind and and uh, straining forward to what lies ahead now again with that child he or she is not concerned with how much they're growing and in the natural growth is kind of a product of just eating and time and you know the 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 Lord the giver of life the Holy Spirit he provides us uh, with with our breath and and sustains us and so it's just a product of of God continuing to give us breath in our bodies and and food and time and we grow but in the spiritual a very significant problem can happen when we start to become self-conscious of our growth and we start to rest on our laurels there's two ways that this is a um, uh, a forgetting that Paul does um, there's a twofold nature to how Paul says I forget what lies behind and these two different ways of forgetting or these two different focuses of forgetting foci of forgetting are um, both positive and negative you know when we talk about sins we talk about sins of commission that is things that we committed things that we did and then there's sins of omission things we didn't do this is kind of like that this is a, a forgetting of our failures and our successes and arguably the first one that we might say is we forget our failures as a, a new believer in Christ we stumble 
We return to sins that we repented from. In fact, we return even sometimes to addicting things that we at first had forsaken. There's any number of things that we can do to fail in the Christian walk. We may fail to fully witness to someone who's, you know, maybe even asking us, you know, do you know God? What do you think about Jesus? What does the Bible say I must do with my life? Or we might even fail to follow the prompting of the Holy Spirit when he says, hey, that person, I want you to go and tell them that God loves them and to share, you know, the, the gospel with them. You know, we might disobey or we might cheat on our taxes or we might look at pornography. I mean, this is the kind of failure that we encounter as Christians. We might even like hit somebody in, in violence or we might hit somebody too hard in jest. We, we have problems. When we come to Christ, not everything is just kind of cleaned up right away. He totally sanctifies us. He totally washes us in his blood. We are, we are a new creature in Christ, yet we have the capacity to continue sinning. Not forever, but we still have struggles. We, we have problems. We get our theology wrong. We get our worship life wrong. We don't read the scriptures as much as we should. We got issues. And so Paul tells these Philippians, who he knows for sure have issues, he says to them, I forget what lies behind. Now, this isn't just kind of, I live my life and I don't even care about consequences. But what he's saying is, after I've resolved in repentance to follow Christ again, after I've stumbled, I get back up and I forget what lies behind. I don't live my life as if that is the supreme rule or the supreme judgment or word or statement about my life. Some of us, this is probably the most significant thing in our walk with the Lord that, that we need to, to work on. We, we literally approach the Father in prayer, in worship, on our own worthiness, and based on whether we've had a good week or a bad week, that determines how close we draw near to God. It, I've seen it in my own life countless times. I know it's got to be in yours. We, we literally approach God in fear because we have sinned more that week than the week before. And we are measuring our own righteousness. We're like the child who would stop growing because he said, I've grown enough. I, you know, I, I've grown enough or I'm not worthy to grow anymore. But because Christ has died for us while we hated him, okay? We hated Christ. We were dead in our sins and trespasses. We were actively warring against God. We were making idols for our own worship. And yet at that time, Christ died for us. How much more, brother, sister, does God love you now that you have turned from that and are looking towards him if you should stumble? How much more? The second thing that we do is we must forget our successes. It's, it's as if becoming self-aware of how far we've come, you know, hey, I've, uh, I've stopped cheating on my employer. I, I'm writing down the accurate times I got to work now, and I used to be a swindler. You know, I'm doing pretty good. Hey, I'm reading my Bible, and I used to be, like, into, you know, like, horror films and stuff. I'm, I'm cleaning my life up. We begin to see just how far we've come, and we do, as it were, a thing called resting on our laurels. How many of you heard that phrase, resting on your, your laurels? A bunch of you. You know what a laurel is? 
I think that phrase is uh, kind of nice, but I think it's also pretty old. A laurel is basically a wreath. It's a, um, it's a thing that's woven together, full of branches, into a circle. And then they put some kind of ribbon on it, and you get it for winning a, a race or a prize or you know something like that. Um, if you've ever seen the Kentucky Derby, the, uh, the trophy that they bring out, I think they have a metal trophy, but then they also give them this big giant uh, piece of you know, tree bow that's been woven together. It's a symbol of a crown that you get for winning the race. And um, maybe the horse eats it later or something. Maybe they put it around his neck. It's got, it's a huge green thing. You gotta, you gotta watch the Derby. Um, but we, we do this thing. We kind of, it's, we, it's called resting on your laurels. You know that you've obtained victories in the past. And so we could just kind of sit back and we coast as it were. In my life, I've had many times where I've uh, been closer to the Lord in terms of my devotions and how much I read His Word. And, and then after those seasons of deep pursuit of God, I, I then float and I kind of turn on the cruise control. And maybe I don't even turn on the cruise control. Maybe I just take my foot off the gas and I'm just slowly coasting. Maybe I've even got a little bit of a downhill momentum. I'm just... I'm kind of resting on momentum, and I'm hoping that's going to carry me in my walk. Paul says that's crap. You need to forget what lies behind. Many times in our life, we go through those seasons. You do it. I do it. But what Christ really wants for you is for you to be able to see him as more valuable than even your spiritual successes. That's his goal for your life. That's what he wants to be for you. And when you focus on uh, the little bit of effort that you exerted in applying the grace of God for your life, you deny God of his glory. You rob from God, as it were. You then change your perspective from being on Christ to how great you are and how great you are at putting your life back together. And you totally deny the cross. You deny the gift of God and the grace of God. He says, let, of, let those of us who are mature think in this way. And if, anything, if in anything you think otherwise, God will reveal that to you. That's an amazing thing for Paul. He's writing a letter bringing theological correction and, and encouragement. And he's, he's confident that God the Holy Spirit will tell you in your heart. After hearing this message that he's, he's writing to, the, to that church, he believes if you think otherwise, if you think you're a mature person, and yet you, you live in, in, in such a way that in your walk with Christ, you're so focused on your failures or so proud of your own successes, if that's the case, God will reveal that to you. He's confident. This, this is an amazing theology of assurance, that even though we struggle, either through sinning or through pride, or through, through any sort of distraction other than Christ, Paul is confident that because God has laid a hold of him and God has laid a hold of the Philippians, that God will reveal the problems to them. He will be their shepherd, and he'll lead them into good paths. So this single cause of this twofold problem that we've been talking about is not really just the sinning. It's not even you know remorse or extreme pride. It's just the single root of focusing on ourselves more than we focus on Christ. And if you're really mature, you'll stop taking your own temperature every few minutes. 
I'm sure um, the nurses that we have in, in here, you would be appalled if your uh, patient started demanding that they instruct you on how to care for them. And yet we do that with the Lord all the time. We take our temperature. We don't approach God. No, Lord, I had a bad week. I can't come to you. No, God, I, I don't need to seek you today. I had an amazing worship encounter last night. I mean, can you imagine telling your nurse or doctor, no, I don't really want that, uh, somebody give me a name of a medicine. I don't want surgery. I don't, I don't want that uh, pill or that, that operation. I'm, I'm, I'm hoping to eat lots of juice and take lots of vitamins and just, you know, my heart attack problems will go away. That's what we do with the Lord. We take our own temperature, we measure our successes or our failures, and then we relate to the Father based on that. When all the time the Father is shouting over you, you are my beloved son, you are my beloved daughter, in you I am well pleased. And he wants to have a relationship with us, yet we put him at a distance. So after talking about all of these things, he, Paul is giving a direction for our lives. And he, he's talking about an economics that is, do we value Christ Jesus more than the stuff in our life? Are the things around us, the situations, the friends, the popularity, the money, the tragedy, our own pity parties, are those things worth nothing to you with Christ being worth everything? And so this is an extremely deep, I mean, this is, he really breaks it down and gets to the core of living. This is an extremely deep way to speak. And so Paul says, this is going to take your whole life, which is why he ends this uh, discussion with a talk about what our true hope is. Okay, not only in, in our walk do we rely on the grace of God, but we also are awaiting a future event for God to make real the, the, the completion of our salvation. That is our great hope as Christians. One of the things that I really like to focus on with new believers um, or or even you know believers who've been in the church for a while, our culture today we we really don't um, have an emphasis on the resurrection of the dead. We focus on whether you go to heaven or not. Now I don't want people to go to hell, but what the what the Christian faith says is that God created the world, and through the devil, it was uh, the the authority over the earth was usurped from Adam, which he, God had delegated his authority to, and the world had fallen, and it had been con corrupted. And the redemption that Christ accomplishes in his work on the earth is a mere precursor to the final day where he will deliver the world from its um, subjugation to evil and futility. The, the Christian faith, at its core, does not value going to heaven as its supreme theological emphasis. If you read the New Testament, all of the apostles, they do, Paul, even in this book, does say that if I die, if I'm away from the body, I'll be with, with the Lord or at home with the Lord. So it is true that when you, when you pass away, if you're a believer in Christ, if you've been washed by his blood and sanctified by him, you will be with the Lord when you pass away. But really, the prime focus of the story, the redemptive history of the, of the scriptures, is the full life that we will experience in a body on this earth, in the new heavens, the new earth that, is, that we're awaiting for. That is the great hope of believers. It's the return of Christ and the final 
removal of the futility and the sin that pervades the earth. And so Paul giving a direction for all of the believers and all of their life, he takes it to the logical end. What is our great hope? Our great hope is that Christ will also redeem us, the ones that he's already redeemed from our sin. He'll also redeem fully the whole earth and will live with him and reign with him. So after giving this direction, he provides a reminder for the perspective on all of the life. He says, brothers, join in imitating me and keep your eyes on those who walk according to the example you have in us. I'm extremely thankful that the Alliance for Renewal Churches exists as an entity. Um, Ray Nethery, as you heard, is coming. He used to be the president of that group of churches, and he brings a unique gift when he comes. There's a certain presence and um, and spiritual gift that, that Ray brings when he, he comes here. I would encourage you, to, to make sure if, you, if you're here when he's here, to get a hold of him, to just say hi to him. But what, what Ray is to us is, uh, is he's a signpost of a life lived well over years. Ray Nethery has been in the ministry longer than I've been on the earth, which is pretty intense when you think about that. You know, you're young, you don't know everything, and there's an extreme amount of persistence and grace and a perspective on life that's required to reach the end of your life in full fervent faith and, and having had effective ministry on your life. You've got 60 more years at least, uh, on average, uh, if, you, if you're going to walk with the Lord. You know, I mean, the average life expectancy for males in the United States, I think it's somewhere like 78 or something like that. If I'm 25 now, I've got probably 50 to 60 years, maybe 70 if the Lord is merciful. And how am I going to get through those years? What are the bedrock foundations of my life? Obviously, the answer, the, you know, the Sunday school answer is Christ. But what, what is that? What I love about Ray and the other elders and leaders in the Alliance for Renewal Churches is they've done it. And we as young people need that perspective, which is why Paul says, join in imitating me and keep your eyes on those who live according to the pattern that you have in us. The apostles live in a righteous way. There are elders, teachers who are imitating the apostles. Imitate them. He then summarizes and ends the passage, but our citizenship is in heaven, and from it we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform our lowly body to be like his glorious body by the power that enables him to even subject all things to himself. And that really is our great hope. Not only is our hope in future grace, that is, God already has grace for your future sins. Those sins which you will commit in the future are pardonable sins. They're sins that Jesus says uh, through the apostle in, in 1 John, if, you're fa- if you uh, confess your sins, he, being Jesus, is faithful and just. He's faithful and righteous to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. And so we not only have a hope for future grace, that is in the future, God will be our shepherd, but also we have a final future hope that Christ will return and we will see the one whom we've loved and evaluated as supremely worthy with our own eyes. That is where we're all going. Um, And not only that, it won't be some kind of spiritual mystic wafting about in the clouds. It'll be full 
It'll be real. It'll be deep. And when we get there, this life will look like it was the shadow. So that's what we hope for. We hope for and await the return of Christ. And that is our sure hope and anchor. He's not only promised us grace in, our, in the future of our life, but he has really promised us grace at the end of the age. So let's pray. Father, we thank you for your wonderful work that you're doing in us by the Holy Spirit. We do thank you, Lord, for the future grace that we know we have because you are our shepherd. We're not our own shepherds. We're not our own lords. Jesus, we ask that you would shine before us through your word, through your people, through your spirit, that you would be so beautiful that the things around us would disappear, that we would stop looking with our eyes on our progress, on our failures, but rather that our eyes would be fixed upon you. We do ask, Lord, for a word-backed revelation of who you are to us, that you're the God-man reigning on the throne of the universe even now in a glorified body, and you are working all things for good for those who love you. Not only that, you are bringing evil to nothing, and you are trampling down Satan. Lord, we do thank you for the promise that you will return and that we will live and reign with you forever and ever. Amen.